0: the first Artemis moon mission finally launched, the James Webb Space Telescope began observing the universe, NASA changed the trajectory of an asteroid. Amazon set a multi-billion dollar launch contract record, and SpaceX's Starlink service became crucial to Ukraine on the battlefield. These are just some of the milestones in another big year for the space industry. But that hasn't stopped space stocks, at least the most recent entrance into the public market, from crashing back to Earth. As financial conditions continue to tighten and space companies begin to consolidate, Tory Bruno, the CEO of United Launch Alliance, discusses ULA's new heavy lift Vulcan rocket and his outlook for the launch industry overall.
1: And while that small rocket costs less than a big rocket to put up thousands of spacecraft, that will be economically impractical. That has turned out to be proven to be the case. All of the constellations are going up on heavy launch vehicles for that reason. The number one economic driver, dollar per spacecraft on orbit. And so there really is only market, in my opinion, for one or two micro launchers, not 170. And so 168 are going to go away.
0: I sat down with Bruno at the Reagan National Defense Forum earlier this month where the conversation covered everything from securing space against a future war to the quote crazy real estate grab underway as companies and countries look to send hundreds of thousands of spacecraft to orbit. I'm Morgan Brennan and this is Manifest Space.
1: Well, I think of this as just an incredibly important moment in time for space Because we've really moved from the era where space was an enabler that made our forces more capable to a place where we're just dependent on it. Basic military effectiveness depends on space. And our adversaries, China and Russia, they know that. And China especially has spent billions of dollars in probably two decades developing anti-satellite weaponry and are deploying them now on orbit and on the ground. So this is a critical moment for us, especially in the space community and launch, where we need to develop new capabilities to make that irrelevant.
0: It's a year ago, you and I were sitting down having a conversation, and it was just a few weeks prior um, that we had seen Russia test its ASAT technology. Yes. Um, is this a situation where we could see more of this type of technology actually implemented in the real world right now? Um, whether it is China, whether it is Russia, or do you think, given the fact that it was so poorly received on the world stage, that there might be a shift away from it?
1: I don't think they're deterred. And, you know, even if there's less, any is too much. The debris from that test is still in orbit now, and it's only just stopped increasing. Now, that might sound a little bit strange, but when you do a kinetic destruction of a spacecraft like that in orbit, you create a debris field, and when we catalog it, we can't see individual pieces right away until it spreads out. And until just this year, that debris field has been getting bigger and bigger and bigger, counting more and more pieces, and it's only just started re-entering enough to begin tapering that off. Mm. So it's, it's not like the environment here on Earth. When you shoot an airplane, God forbid, or you destroy a ship, they leave the domain. They come to the Earth, they go to the bottom of the sea. Space is different. It stays there and it fouls the common ground for years.
0: So when we talk about securing space, and certainly the Space Force has talked about things like resilient space architecture. Yes. What is ULA's role in that?
1: Well, it's more than just a resilient architecture. You know, we will hear a lot of talk, and you're going to hear it here at this forum, about how fast china is going and how we need to catch up to china and i'm going to argue that that's wrong china's not going as fast as we think they are we're seeing the fruits of two decades of investment and development largely dependent and enabled by technologies that they have stolen from us it looks fast because we're at the tail end of that and catching up to them is the wrong strategy we need to leapfrog ahead of them and make all of those investments and those 20 years of work ineffective and irrelevant. And when we look at how we do that, it's really about deterring aggression in space by making that aggression pointless and ineffective. And we want to do that by making our spacecraft sort of unknown where they are, unfindable, unattackable, and resilient also to individual losses. I'm working on that right now in launch. I know what to do. And the whole country needs to be focused on that attitude, resetting the clock, put them back 20 years and make them start again. Or else we are really at risk of seeing a conflict not just start in the Earth and escalate to space, but probably starting in space first.
0: So when you say you're working on it in launch, what does that mean?
1: Well, I, I can't say everything that i'm doing because i feel like china doesn't need to know that just right now but i'll give you some hints it it has to do with what we do after we go to space you know today when i launch a rocket china and russia are able to see the configuration of the vehicle we take to the pad they observe the flight path they observe the separation and from all of that they have a very good idea what it is what it's for and where to find it None of that has to be true. We can do things with mobility in space and on the way there to make all of that very difficult, unfindable, unattackable, and insensitive to a few losses, which is not what we have today.
0: Okay. Well, of course, when we talk about the U.S. and you talk about things like government contracting, it's not always the fastest, most easiest process. When we talk about, I guess, crafting uh, budgets and allocating money towards things like R&D, not always the fastest, most easiest process. Can we as a country move quickly enough to actually counter China, given the fact that that has been decades in the making?
1: Yes, we can. I mean, the technologies that I said enable the weapons they are fielding now, those are our ideas. I can't think of a single thing, including their hypersonics efforts, that I didn't personally work on 20 years ago. Mm. We set them down because we had a global war on terror to prosecute. They picked them up and they've been working on them all this time. And when you're a defense contractor, when you work in this industry, you have a special responsibility. Yes, it's a business, but it's more than a business. I've been working on the things I alluded to for several years now. I haven't waited for a contract. That's what my R&D investments are for, to be ready with the things the government needs when they figure out what they require. And what the Pentagon can do, what the Space Force can do right now and quickly, is determine those needs. What are those requirements, and we in industry will respond to that even before contracting happens.
0: You mentioned hypersonics, and I do want to take a little detour. Uh, Before I get to other topics with you, um, because we have seen those efforts start to pick up a little bit more here in the U.S., but we are Mm -hmm. also seeing Russia, for example. Deploy and test out their own hypersonic capabilities in Ukraine, unfortunately. Yes. Um, where do you think we're at in terms of that process?
1: Well, the first thing to understand is that, you know, we're missing a word when we say hypersonics. It's maneuvering hypersonics. All of these short range, long range missiles are hypersonic. All space launch vehicles are hypersonic. What we can't handle very well in missile defense systems are hypersonic threats that deviate off their ballistic course because you know, you're know you intercepting an incoming warhead. You're aiming in front of it. You commit to launching an interceptor or an offensive capability to destroy that thing in advance of where it's going to be. And so if it deviates from that path after you've committed, then you can't hit it anymore. So that's what the problem is. And we have developed a lot of hypersonic technology in the past, and we've put it on hold. We can go from where we were then to our own capability very quickly but what is even a higher priority is how better to defend against the hypersonic threat that mm-hmm. they're fielding now because that is essentially an offensive capability and that's important when we're deterring aggression of course but what complements that very well is to say well go ahead and attack it's not going to work your warheads not going to get through Your thrust against the spacecraft will not succeed so it you know you will be committing enormous resources, even you see, you, we talk about Russia and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. They're running out of weapons that they've committed. It's very expensive. It makes you a pariah in the international community. It invites economic sanctions. So you're making that bet for a change that is worth all of that through that attack. If we can make the attack very unlikely to succeed, that in itself is a deterrence. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and certainly speaking of sanctions and speaking of what we've seen uh... this year some of the launch capacity has essentially gone out of the market now because yes. of russia's own actions your thoughts on what the launch market looks like over the coming years especially as we do see more and more customers come to the market both government and private sector uh, looking to do more and more launches
1: what an astute question because there has been just a tremendous sea state change in the launch market over the last 12 months. For the prior 30 years, globally, there has been an oversupply of launch because many countries consider their access to space a sovereign strategic imperative. And they have launch vehicles and albeit sometimes tiny launch industries, but have them whether they need them or not. And so as a launch provider you know, in the business, you're always competing in, a, in an environment where there's more supply than demand. <laughs> and that just changed in the last 12 months. Two things happened. You hit on the first important one, which is a number of, of launch providers have exited the marketplace because of Ukraine. Anything with uh, Russian rockets or Russian content Are really not available anymore. But at the same time, it's really a double whammy. It's the perfect storm. There is a whole new mission, a commercial mission in space, these mega constellations or so-called proliferated LEO that brings Internet to space that has radically increased the demand. So we have less rockets available to go to space and much more demand to go there. And all of a sudden, the whole thing is upside down. Now there's a scarcity of lift. That's going to last at least a decade. And so hmm. that has to affect, in national security space, how the government thinks about ensuring its access, especially to what we call the high energy orbits that are not used by the commercial marketplace at all. Okay. And require special technologies in the design of the rocket.
0: And so that's an area you're targeting?
1: Yes, it is. That's our specialty already. It's what we have optimized our existing rockets and our brand new rocket for. And so we feel it's, you know, it's not only a good business opportunity, but it's really our duty to make sure we move that to an even greater capability and be able to service those needs.
0: I want to get to Vulcan specifically, but first just one more question on this because Project Kuiper out of Amazon, um, saw a big, massive, massive uh, flurry of launch contracts awarded earlier this, Year yes. ULA is yeah. going to take the lion's share of those. We are. How much is to this idea of proliferated, pro- proliferated Leo? How much is Amazon coming into the market with its satellite business gobbling up that capacity over the coming years?
1: It is absolutely significant. I mean, you know, certainly between Kuiper, but not Kuiper alone. Starlink is also now the majority yeah. of SpaceX launches launching for themselves, really for their own constellation these are the two big elements you see today but there are several others one web is, is entering the marketplace there are a few smaller um, Leo constellations that had already been underway an interesting industry trend is that traditional comsat operators that, that in the past have placed their spacecraft in higher orbits are now merging with other companies Mm -hmm. who were in the LEO market to create a hybrid offering. And this is just the beginning. In the last three years, the licenses for spacecraft going to orbit to do this mission has tripled. And we're now looking at licenses for 50,000 objects in space. This is huge. And that's just the beginning. The applications take that to 100,000 and there are people filing. It, it's gotten so crazy, there are countries filing just to grab the real estate. That wow. takes it to 500,000.
0: I didn't realize the numbers had gotten quite that staggering. It's, it's, ama- it's a total it's kind change. Of, yeah, it kind of takes your breath away uh, a little bit. Uh, so talk to me about Vulcan. Are we mm-hmm. still on pace for a Q1 2023 launch? We
1: are, yeah. We're super excited. So I've got my engines from Blue Origin. <laughs> we talked about that yes, last we, time. Yes, we did. They are on the back of the rocket. They are functioning beautifully. Uh, the rocket is is built, and now I'm testing that first stage. Second stage, same thing. It's built. We're testing it, and before the end of the month, it's going on the rocket ship to sail out to the Cape. And be ready for and waiting for our payloads.
0: Wow. So, if, so Q1, this everything goes according to plan with a test. Does it become operational? Do we start seeing regular launches next year?
1: Yes, you do. Wow. Yeah. So that'll be the first launch. It also serves as a certification flight for National Security Space. Okay. Our plan. Every plan is different. You set <laughs> that up with the government. Our plan calls for two missions. This first mission is the most important one because it really exercises the rocket. And even after the payloads are deployed, we will go on with the upper stage and do more things to continue to demonstrate other parts of that certification. And then later in the summer, we'll fly again. That's the second and final certification. And then we have Space Force missions we need to do at the end of the year. And then we're off and going.
0: Wow. Reusability?
1: Yes, did you see the Lofted mission? Did you have a chance to see that?
0: I have not seen it. Oh,
1: the video is so awesome. If we weren't on camera, I'd pull out my phone and show you. <laughs> okay. But, you know, we uh, there's two, I'll say it this way, there's two basic kinds of reuse that you do based on what your rocket is optimized for. So if, if you are a rocket optimized for LEO, which is where most of the commercial market is, that's a rocket that's going to go to space in 15 or 20 minutes, and Even if the satellite goes beyond LEO, the rocket's done in LEO, so it's a LEO mission. And that makes you design a rocket that stages very early, so early in flight, low velocity, relatively low altitude. You finish the first stage, separate it, throw all that inert mass away, and then you use that second stage to get the rest of the way to space, and then it only has to operate for another 10 minutes or so, and you know, last that long, have that much propellant, and look drop off its satellite. So when you're doing that, the kind of reuse you use is what you see SpaceX doing, where they fly the booster home. Because it, it's not that high up, it's not going that fast, it's not very far downrange, and the impact of saving maybe a third of your propellant to do that isn't that big a deal. Okay. So that's that kind of reuse. For us, we're optimized, most efficient for the high energy mission which means that booster flies twice as high, twice as fast, twice as far downrange, And so flying at home is a lot more technically difficult and it's also more impactful to those high energy missions to save all that propellant to fly home with. See, we're gonna take that upper stage almost all the way to orbit so that most of its fuel is left over to do the complex high energy maneuvers in space. So it's not a 15 minute ride, it might be a seven hour ride, 40 mm. times longer. So, you see how it fundamentally altered the nature of the rocket's basic design. So, flying it home, flying a booster home, isn't real practical for us. So, instead, we're going to get back our engines and our thrust structure, which is 60 to 70 percent of the cost of the booster, because the rest of the booster is just an empty gas tank. And we do that by re entering it behind a revolutionary brand new re-entry technology. And when I mentioned lofted, that's what I was talking about. We've just done an orbital class demonstration of that. In the past, a hypersonic re-entry shield has always been a large, rigid, extremely heavy ceramic structure that ablates, which is a fancy engineering term that really means it burns away as it's re-entering. It's getting thinner and thinner as you're burning the hot surface away but it really limits the size of something you can re-enter because you have this ginormous cone (laughs) that you have to package in its fully you know deployed configuration but together with NASA we've developed a new technology where we can do this with an inflatable heat shield new materials that can survive these temperatures and don't have to be burned off and that means you can let all the gas out of it fold it up stow it in a small space and then when you want to re-enter, you inflate it. It can be as big as you want. And so for NASA, that means gigantic rovers going to the surface of Mars, because it's the heat shield, the re-entry, that limits how big that is, not the rocket. Huh. And for us, we can recover our engines, which brings me all the way around to the beginning. We just conducted a half-scale demo of that. So on our last mission, which was a weather satellite, we had a secondary payload, which was a demonstration of this. And we deployed a six meter, 20 foot across, inflatable heat shield, re-entered it through the atmosphere, had it hit the ocean. It then serves as a raft to keep the payload dry, sailed out with a commercial recovery boat, picked it up with a crane and took it home. Worked perfectly. It looks brand new. It looks like you could use it again.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you. And we'll start doing that on Vulcan partway through the Kuiper launches.
0: Okay. Wow, that's really cool. So, it's gonna bring me back to a question we've, I've asked you a million times because I have to, and that is Starship, SpaceX in general. Competition, there's room for both of you.
1: There is room for both of us. And by the way, Starship is a classic example of what I was explaining in terms of a rocket optimized for a LEO mission and what i mean by that is its most efficient when it goes to leo it can carry the most payload when it goes to leo and in this particular case i would describe it as a freight train it will take a very very large mass to leo but as you try and take that type of rocket and move out to the higher energy orbits the performance falls off very 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 fast and uh... I won't comment on on Starship because I'm not at SpaceX, I don't know all the details, but I'll say that in general that type of rocket configuration, in some cases, can't get out of LEO because that's not what it's built to do. So all rockets are not the same. Mm -hmm. Bigger rockets don't always do more than smaller rockets, and there's a lot more to go into space than just going up until it's dark and hard to breathe.
0: Okay. So, final question for you then. Yeah. And we've talked about this in the past before, too, we have seen this proliferation of rocket companies as well as obviously proliferation of satellite companies. We're starting to see some consolidation, particularly on the satellite side. A lot of these companies that have gone public in the past year or two have dropped dramatically in value. Um, Question marks about whether some of them will survive. What do you think about the sector more broadly right now and this shakeout? Do we have further to go? Do you expect to see consolidation?
1: Absolutely. Um, The most impacted segment of the market will be the micro-launchers, the small launch companies. And I'm gonna take you back through time when all of these guys appeared and there was 150, even 170 of them registered as companies. Now, not all of those people were building anything or flying anything, but a crazy number of micro-launchers. And the reason they were there is because they saw the mega-constellations coming with these small spacecraft that would be in LEO. And they said, my gosh, there'll be thousands of spacecraft. And so we can build small rockets that can launch these small satellites, and those rockets will be less expensive. And so that was their value proposition to the investment community, and they all got going. At that time, if you had interviewed me, I would have pointed out that um, actually, the physics of lift dictate that a heavy launch vehicle has 10 times less dollars per kilogram cost than a small one. And while that small rocket costs less than a big rocket, to put up thousands of spacecraft, that will be economically impractical. That has turned out to be proven to be the case. All of the constellations are going up on heavy launch vehicles for that reason. The number one economic driver, dollar per spacecraft on orbit. And so there really is only market, in my opinion, for one or two micro-launchers not 170. And so, 168 are going to go away. Mm. And there's going to be one or two left, and they will primarily be doing uh, experiments and demos. At one point, there was talk of, well, okay, maybe they're not going to lift the main constellations, but perhaps they will lift replacements as individual satellites in a mega constellation die or become obsolete. I contended with that at the time and said, no, the economics tell us that the best way to do that if you're a a mega constellation operator, is to lift them all at once and have on orbit spares and that has also proven to be the case the companies lift about ten to twelve percent on orbit spares and they wait and when they lose one they bring one of those down so it's really down to that that sort of demo experiment niche market and we saw it in the in the number of satellites lifted by each type of vehicle we track that So the heavy lifters took off, as you pointed out, all of the capacity sucked up by mega constellations. We saw the micros starting to grow a little bit, and then their market has collapsed over the last year because even the demos can go up as ride shares on a heavy launch vehicle for very low cost because the primary payload's already paid for the ride.
0: That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by searching Manifest Space wherever you get your podcasts and by following the Squawk on the Street podcast. For more on the Space Race, be sure to watch Squawk on the Street on CNBC. I'm Morgan Brennan. (laughs)